Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to week eight in our Genesis series. Uh, believe it or not, week eight. We're actually getting very close to the end. And you might say, well, wait a second. We've, we've got a long way to go in Genesis. Um, I apologize if I haven't made this clear, but my intention was actually just to do the first 11 chapters of Genesis because in the 12th chapter, there's a shift that takes place where we start focusing on the life of Abraham. And I, I thought it would be fun to this time just stick with what's called the primeval history, the ancient history of those first 11 chapters. And I would like to do part two looking at Abraham's life and then maybe a part three looking at more of the patriarchs. Um, but I didn't want to spend a whole year in one book. So uh, we've got this week and one more week in Genesis uh, before we shift into the next thing. Uh, so we're getting close. Uh, but hopefully, if you were here last week, you remember that we talked about the flood. And this week, we're talking about what happened immediately after the flood. Uh, where we left off last week, Noah and his family had finally been given the uh, all clear from God to come out of the ark. You might remember that they had been in the ark for 380 days. So longer than a year, and 60 of those days took place after, it says that Noah looked outside and saw that the, the, the ground was dry. So they exercised remarkable patience in waiting for God's command uh, to step out of the ark. But where we're picking up today, this is when uh, Noah and his family are finally stepping out of the ark into this new era in human history. And the question that we should be asking ourselves as they are doing this is, are things going to be different now? Um, remember, in the last era, God had given human beings a significant amount of authority. And as we've been talking about over the last month, human beings really abused that authority, and they became very violent. And it got so bad that God said uh, in the passage we looked at last week, every inclination of the thoughts of man was only evil all the time. Every, only, all. So pretty bad. So as readers who have been following this storyline in Genesis, we should, be, we should be wondering, is God going to establish new rules this time around? Is he, is he going to put uh, a, stronger restrictions on things so that uh, we don't have the same chaos that went on before the flood? Right? That's a good question to be asking. So with that question on our minds, let's see what happens. If you have your Bibles, uh, open up to Genesis 8, verse 18. Uh, Genesis 8, starting in verse 18. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives. All the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on the earth, came out of the ark, one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures, as I have done, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. So Noah and his family finally get out of the ark, and the first thing Noah does is a good thing. He expresses thanks for God's protection by offering a, uh, a burnt offering. And the first thing that God does is he essentially says, I'm not going to do anything like that again. 
He makes a promise. And what I want us to notice is that God's promise here is, is unconditional. It's not conditioned on human performance, right? God doesn't say this because he thinks, well, from now on, humans have learned their lesson. Now, from now on, they're going to behave. Uh, did you notice what it says in verse 21? Never again will I curse the ground, even though every inclination of the heart of man is evil from childhood. It's an incredible line. It's like God is saying, you know what? I'm never going to do that again, even though they're going to deserve it. So God's first words to this, this new era of human history are very encouraging. Uh, but there's more. We continue on in chapter 9. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air, upon every creature that moves along the ground and upon all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hands. Now, we'll come to see in a little while that God does make a few changes in this era of human history. But what we get here is just a reaffirmation of the plan that God had for humanity since the beginning. Uh, this is almost taken verbatim from chapter 1. Hopefully you guys remember um, that in chapter 1, God said when he created humanity, rule over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then what we just read, very similar wording. The wording is a little bit different, but that's because in the first one, he's commissioning humanity, and in this one, he's basically describing what this is going to be like from the animal's perspective. The fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth. So I was asking that question, right? Are things going to be different? Well, in these verses, the answer is an emphatic no. Things are going to be the same. So what I want us to see here in these verses, okay, is God's stubborn refusal to give up on his plan for human life. Um, I don't mean to sound disrespectful by using the word stubborn to, to refer to God. I, I mean it in a positive sense. He's, he's unyielding in this regard. He has a stubborn refusal to give up his plan for human life. You know, he, he had this plan for human life. Things really went off the rails. But in chapter 9, he's just insisting on the same plan. He doesn't want to change anything. He still wants humanity to spread over all of the earth. He wants us to be fruitful and multiply. He wants humanity to be the kings and queens of creation. That hasn't changed. And again, God's stubbornness on this point, it is not because he's naive. Like he said in chapter 8, he's doing this even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. What I want us to see is that what this is telling us is that God is like a parent who refuses to give up on their drug-addicted son or daughter. Okay? It's, it's not naivety or foolishness that, that leads God to be stubborn here, just as it's not naivety or foolishness that leads a parent of an addict to hold on to their dreams for their child. It's, it's faithfulness, right? It's love that does that. God blessed humanity in the beginning. Humanity messed up that blessing, but God stubbornly reasserts the blessing. And this morning, I feel led to encourage us, uh, wherever we're at, to see God's commitment to humanity's blessing here and apply it personally. Okay, we need to realize that God is really stubborn about wanting to see us blessed. God is really stubborn about wanting us to experience real joy, real peace, real fruitfulness. Even when his stubbornness seems to defy logic, 
okay, even when we don't deserve it and we never will. Now, you might be thinking, well, Ryan, what about the flood? <laughs> Just a little while ago, he did flood the whole earth, right? Well, it is possible to resist the blessing that God stubbornly offers to us. And if we resist it permanently, there are consequences to that. That is something that the flood story teaches us. But like we learned last week, did it give pleasure to God to send the flood? Did it? No, it didn't. God would always rather see us turn to him and experience redemption than reject his blessing and experience judgment. And so as long as you are still breathing, you can be confident that God is more interested in your redemption than your condemnation. And he is stubbornly committed to you experiencing blessing in the truest sense of the word. Not in the cheap sense of the word, you know, the blessing of of, uh, money and stuff and that sort of thing, but in the truest sense of the word, the blessing of a peace that transcends understanding, the blessing of a relationship with him, um, a blessing that is not dependent on worldly circumstances. God stubbornly wants us, wants that for us, and he wants it so much that he gave his son's life on the cross so that we could have it. Now, in addition to reasserting, stubbornly reasserting that same blessing on humanity, God made a few changes, too. So let's see what those are. Uh, Continuing in verse 3, everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. Now, this is interesting because it, it tells us something that's not actually explicit in Genesis 1 and 2, but it confirms that this is the case. God's original design for human beings is actually a vegetarian diet. I don't know how we feel about that, but that's pretty clear that that's what the text says. Um, But here, God gives us permission to deviate from that design and to start eating meat. He, He gives his blessing for us to do that. Now, why exactly God makes this change here, I'm not sure. But here's what I want us to notice. Not only is God stubbornly reasserting the blessing, but he's actually expanding it here, right? Because now not only does humanity have permission to rule over all the living creatures, but now he's going so far as to say, you can eat them too. Uh, So blessing is not just maintained, it's expanded. But lest we get carried away with our power, there's a little condition that God adds in verse 4. He says, but you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. In other words, okay, if you're going to eat meat, you have to make sure that the blood has been removed. Now, why does God say this? Well, there's probably a couple reasons, which we don't have time to talk about all of them. Uh, But I think that part of what God is doing here is he's adding a requirement that helps to guard us against abusing our freedom. Uh, He's saying, okay, if you're going to eat animals, I'm giving giving you permission to eat animals, but if you're going to do it, you still have to respect the fact that these are living creatures. And I, not you, am the author of their lives. And a way of showing respect for living creatures is by separating the blood, which in those days was understood to be the source of life, Uh, from the meat. It's like saying God is really the one that owns the life. Now, you might be wondering, okay, well, what does that mean for me today? 
Does that mean that God really wishes that I was a vegetarian? Uh, does that mean that I need to be really careful not to eat any blood? Does that mean rare steak is a bad idea? God forbids that. Well, I think this is an area where we have to let people follow their conscience. Uh, because you can certainly make a biblical case that God's ideal is vegetarianism. You know, that was his initial design, so we might as well do that. But you can also argue that God made an amendment to that design, which he definitely did here, and he blessed us with permission to eat meat, and meat tastes good, too. So, you know, uh, I think your decision here is between you and God. But I think God's rule here about not eating the blood uh, at the same time as eating the meat should inspire us to respect animals even as we eat them. So <clears throat> I think that means that we should care about questions like, well, before this animal made it to my plate, what happened to it? You know? Um, was it treated well until its life was ended? Was its life ended in a quick and humane way? Uh, I think those are reasonable things to care about, and I think they can be 21st century ways of respecting the fact that God is the author of this life, that ultimately it belongs to him, and it's a 21st century way of not eating the blood, in my opinion. So. All right, that said, even though we should have respect for human life or, and animal life, we should have respect for animal life, we should never think that animal life is more valuable than human life. That's where some of the more radical people and, and PETA and that sort of thing, I think, get things wrong. Continuing in verse 5, And for your lifeblood I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from, any anim from every animal, and from each man, too. I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. So, once again, uh, God says he will hold human beings accountable for killing other human beings, and he's even going to hold animals accountable for killing other human beings. Now, don't ask me how that works. <laughs> this is hard for me to imagine God calling a bear or a shark into a heavenly court and uh, holding them accountable. Yogi, did you eat the forest ranger? Oh, I did. I didn't mean anything by it, though. I was just so hungry. Um, I, I don't want to speculate about that, because I don't know. Uh, but what I want us to notice here is that God demands an accounting for animals who take human life, but not for humans who take animal life, provided that it's done in the right way. So we, we need to recognize that there is definitely a difference from a biblical perspective in the value of human and animal life. Doesn't mean animals aren't valuable, doesn't mean they shouldn't be treated with respect, but they're not on the same level of importance as human beings. Now, in the next verse, we get a second new rule in this era of creation. It's in verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. Okay, who boy. Uh, this one requires some attention. Okay, what we see here is God is putting down his foot and he's saying, look, up until this point, I've shown a lot of grace to murderers. Okay, when Cain killed Abel, I, I protected him. You know, I let him live out a full and long life. Um, and before the flood, as people became more and more violent, I endured their murderous tendencies for hundreds and hundreds of years before sending the flood. I, I patiently endured that. But this time around, as we're starting this new era in human history, I want you to know, if you kill someone, 
you deserve to die. Uh, that is a fair principle, life for life. So before you murder, before you steal someone's life from them, keep in mind that the moment you do, you have lost your right to live. Keep in mind that you are killing someone who is made in my image. So in other words, your attack on another person is actually an attack on me, on God. Uh, that's how serious this is. Now the challenge we face is, well, how do we apply that verse today? Does this mean that our court system really should be enforcing the death penalty? And if it's not, it's not in line with the way God says things should be. All right, well, I would say that our personal opinion on that issue is, is something that should be formed by considering more than just that one verse. Okay, the Bible is a big book, and there's, there's a lot in there that we need to consider when we're answering a question like that. Um, so, and I say that for a couple reasons. Uh, one reason is because uh, the whole message of the gospel is that God has been merciful to us, right? The, the, the principle of life for life is just, but it's not merciful necessarily, okay? So the whole, the whole idea of the gospel, God has been merciful to us, therefore we are also called to demonstrate mercy to others. So we have to keep that in mind when asking ourselves the question, okay, is, is the death penalty absolutely something that should be enforced into society? And the other significant thing to keep in mind is that there are important figures in the Bible who murdered people, but then still had a part to play in redemptive history. Okay, Moses is a great example, right? Who ironically is traditionally believed to be the author of this. <laughs> okay, Moses uh, killed an Egyptian, and it wasn't an accident. It wasn't uh, in warfare. He witnessed an Egyptian mistreating a Hebrew slave, and he was enraged, and he went and he killed the Egyptian, and that's why he ran away from Egypt in the first place. Now, if the principle of life for life, justice, had been done, right, Moses would have been killed before he ever talked to Moses and the burning, or talked to God through the burning bush and led the Egyptians out of Egypt and and, um, or led the Egyptians, led the Israelites out of Egypt and, and uh, delivered the law from Mount Sinai, he never would have done all that, right? And so when we're asking ourselves the question, how do we, how do we enforce this? You know, what's the best way to apply this in our modern day? There's a lot of things to consider. It's not just as simple as looking at one verse and pointing to it and saying, that's that. <clears throat> um, but wherever we fall on this issue of the death penalty, one thing that we must see in this verse is how valuable human life is to God. Uh, and what, what really would have stood out in the ancient world is that the value of human life, according to this verse, is universal. Right? There's, no, there's no stipulations on that. It's, 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 it's universal. In those days, uh, if a rich person killed a poor person, then they could usually get away with just paying financial restitution to the grieving family. But if a poor person killed a rich person, well, that's it. The poor person is going to die. But here, this is enforcing a, a universal idea of the value of human life, rich or poor. All human life is valuable. All human life is made in the image of God. Now, after God makes this revolutionary statement about the universal value of human life, 
he does something else to emphasize the value of human life, which is that he re reiterates this promise that he is never going to flood the earth like this and destroy all living creatures again. And he says that a sign of this promise from now on is going to be a rainbow. He says, starting in verse 12, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Now, just to be clear, in case you're wondering, this is not saying that rainbows did not exist before this moment. That would require a complete recreation of the laws of physics. So that's, that's not what's going on here. What it's saying is that from now on, the rainbow should serve as a symbol of this promise. God is saying that when he sees the rainbow, he will remember his covenant. And similarly, when we see the rainbow, we should remember his covenant, never to kill all living creatures again. Now, you might be wondering, okay, well, why a rainbow? Well, I think there's some very interesting uh, symbolism in here on God's part. The text doesn't tell us explicitly why a rainbow would be the symbol, but I think we can figure it out. The rainbow is always a sign that the storm is temporary, right? Because in order to have a rainbow, you have to have a storm, but you also have to have, to have the sunlight breaking through the storm. The rainbow is like the place where the sun and the storm come together. Um, and so, in order to have a rainbow, the sun has to be shining. And if the sun is shining, then the storm is either, either over or it's going to be over very soon. Right? So it makes sense that this would be God's chosen sign of his promise that there's never going to be a storm like the one that just happened again. All right, so let's summarize all this so far. What I want us to see is that when we consider everything we looked at so far, we can summarize God's attitude post-flood around the concept of blessing. So, after the flood, God reasserts the blessing on humanity, number one. Number two, he expands the blessing on humanity. And number three, he promises blessing on all living creatures by promising through the sign of the rainbow never to flood the earth again. So that is God post-flood. But the question we should be asking now is, what about humanity? How's humanity doing post-flood? God's faithful, he's committed, reasserting the blessings. What about people? All right, well, let's, let's find out how humanity is doing. Uh, starting in verse 18 in chapter 9, and just as a warning, this passage is weird. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backwards and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father's nakedness. 
When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the, lower, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Japheth. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his slave. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Altogether, Noah lived 950 years, and then he died. All right, so here we're given a glimpse of, the, of uh, Noah's family, the dynamics of Noah's family following the flood, the kings of que- and queens in this new era of human history. And keep in mind, this family is the cream of the crop, right? <laughs> um, as we read last week, it said Noah was a righteous man and blameless in his generation. But in this story, righteous and blameless are probably not words that we would use to, to describe Noah or his family, right? Uh, first, we see that Noah gets drunk. And I don't think we can uh, chalk this up to ignorance uh, or lack of experience with alcohol because it does say he planted, a, he planted a vineyard. So if he planted a vineyard, he must have some idea of why you plant a vineyard and what you get when you plant a vineyard and um, the effects, the potential effects of, of a vineyard. Um, but even so, he drinks to a point where he passes out, or at least he's unaware of his surroundings. And he's naked. Uh, and then uh, one of his sons, Ham, sees him naked. And then Ham goes and tells his brothers, Shem, Shem and Japheth, what he's seen. And Shem and Japheth, they seem really concerned. So they go and they, they cover Noah's nakedness. And then when Noah comes to, he realizes what's happened. I don't know how he realizes. Presumably somebody tells him. And he's really upset. And so he says a curse. And weirdly, the curse isn't on Ham, but it's actually on one of Ham's sons, Canaan. Now, this whole episode is really confusing, right? Uh, It's confusing because, well, if you're like me, you're wondering, what did Ham do that was so bad? Okay. And uh, whatever Ham did, why did his son get cursed rather than him? It's very, very strange. Well, I don't, I don't want to go into a lot of detail on this. I'll just say there's a lot of, of discussion about this passage. And it, there's some things that we can say absolutely for sure, which I'm going to get to in the moment. Um, I will say there are some people who say that the language is very idiomatic here. And that, uh, so in other words, it's saying more than it's actually saying. And uh, some people say that that Ham actually did something incestuous here, either with his mother or his father, and that would help to explain why Noah is is so angry. Um, But we don't know that for sure. And there are problems with those interpretations. So I think the best way to, to understand what's going on here is by noticing that there are significant parallels with this story in Adam and Eve, the story of Adam and Eve. So in both stories, uh, there's a garden, right? In the story of Adam and Eve, the Lord plants a garden, the Garden of Eden. And then in the Noah story, uh, Noah plants a vineyard. Uh, in both stories, there is a sin. And you could say that in, the sin involves misuse of a fruit. <laughs> okay? So... <laughs> 
In, in the Adam and Eve story, they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which they're not supposed to eat from, the one tree they're not supposed to eat from. And in the story of Noah and the flood, uh, Noah gets drunk, so he misses, misuses the fruit of the vine. Another parallel is in both stories, sin results in nakedness. Uh, Adam and Eve, they were, they were naked, technically speaking, before they sinned, but they didn't realize they were naked. They didn't have shame associated with that na- nakedness until after they sinned. So the first thing they, they notice after they sin is that they are naked. And then also you could say that Noah's sin results in nakedness as well. And then, you know, at first I wasn't entirely convinced that these stories are supposed to be parallel, but this was the thing that clinched it for me. In both stories, somebody covers the nakedness and shame. Uh, so in, in the Adam and Eve story, uh, God himself uh, clothes their nakedness and their shame with animal skins. And then in this story, uh, Shem and Japheth cover their father's nakedness and shame with a garment. And they, of course, uh, do that very carefully. Um, so I think when we recognize the parallels between these two stories, we can understand why Noah gets so upset. Uh, Because Noah is ashamed. Uh, He's ashamed that he got drunk and naked and that his son saw that. And he's mad that his son didn't make any attempt to cover his shame. He feels dishonored by his son. Maybe Ham went and just, you know, made fun of Noah to Shem and Japheth. And, oh, did you see dad? You know, and then, they, and then Shem and Japheth were like, oh, oh dear, you know, we, we better cover, cover that shame. Um, and Noah is, is, uh, is very upset that uh, Ham did not make any attempt to, to hide the shame. And you see, Noah, just like Adam and Eve, and just like Cain, is desperate to cover his shame. Um, the shame of his sin. And when he comes to his senses and someone tells him that Ham made no effort to cover his shame, he is angry. Uh, he feels embarrassed and he feels dishonored. And so he took that out by cursing part of Ham's family. Now, whatever the case, whatever exactly is going on here, there's a couple of things we can be totally sure about. Dad got drunk. One of the sons totally disrespected Dad. And Dad got so angry, he cursed one part of the family. And I I do want us to notice, okay, it's easy to read this curse and think God is making the curse. God's not the one making the curse, right? It's Noah. Noah makes the curse because he's really upset. So I think that's an important distinction to recognize. So I would say this. Based on all of that, there is one word that summarizes humanity after the flood. Dysfunctional. Uh, Noah's, Noah and his family sound like they could use a few sessions with a licensed therapist. Right? Too bad they're the only ones around. <laughs> now, this might sound paradoxical, but I think that this should actually be really comforting to us for two reasons. One, because this is a reminder that we have no reason to think that there is a perfectly functional family out there. (laughs) I mean, Noah's family, the one family chosen to survive the judgment of the flood, and this is the one thing we really learn about them. Like, before now, all we know is they built the ark, right? But we don't get any insight into the actual dynamics of the family until this. Um, You know, so we should not be surprised when dysfunction shows up in our families. I'm not saying that we should make light of it or that we shouldn't make any effort to 
make things better, to improve. But the reality is, you know, God works with imperfect families. We should be able to take comfort in that. And then secondly, this dysfunction should be comforting to us because it's presented to us right after we learn about God's stubborn determination to bless humanity. Right after that. You know, if, if Noah had, and his family had been described after that as just this very uh, perfect family, you know, raising their kids um, in this idyllic world, then we might have cause to wonder, well, maybe God's not stubbornly determined, stubbornly determined to bless my family. You know, maybe he's just stubbornly determined to bless uh, this particular chosen family that's exceptionally righteous. You know, maybe he would change his mind with my family. But if this is what the family was like when God stubbornly, you know, continued to, to keep to his plan to bless humanity, then I think we can have confidence, too, that God is stubbornly committed to blessing our families as well. So the bottom line here is humanity is dysfunctional, every family is dysfunctional, but God just can't give us up. Right? God just can't let go of that vision that he had at the start of creation for us to flourish, to be fruitful and multiply and to rule over the earth. So chapter 9 of Genesis, it's good news. But it also presents us with a problem which is, how is God's vision for humanity ever going to be fulfilled? We just took drastic measures. The whole world was flooded, and this is how things start off. How is this ever going to be fulfilled? You know, God wants to bless us, but we seemed determined to mess that up. So what's the solution? Well, and I know you guys might be getting tired of hearing this, but... (laughs) because I've said this every week, the solution was something that we were told about back in chapter 3, right after sin first entered the world. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I'm hoping that when this series is over, every one of you will be able to explain this verse to anybody who asks. You'll remember it. It'll stick with you for the rest of your life. Genesis 3:15. God's words to the devil after humanity is first led into sin. And I will put enmity, which is another word for hostility. I'll put hostility between you, the devil, And the woman, in between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And that word for offspring there, it's it's not easy for us to see because in our language it can be plural or singular, right? But, But the word there is singular. It's telling us that there is going to be one offspring, one particular descendant coming through the human genetic line, through woman, who will destroy the devil and in so doing, destroy the power of sin and death and dysfunction. And today we know that the fulfillment of that promise was and is Jesus Christ. You know, no human being has ever been able to fulfill God's intention for humanity. No human being has ever ruled over creation perfectly. We are the kings and queens of creation, but our crowns are dented and dirty. Every human has been dysfunctional, except for one except for Jesus Christ. And the reason that Jesus was able to do that, to be the one who was not dysfunctional, was because in addition to being fully human, he was also fully God. God was, and he is, so stubbornly committed to our blessing that he went so far as to take on human flesh and suffer and die on a cross in order to save us from our own dysfunction. 
You know, some sermons, they tell you to do something. Others just declare the truth of some, something. And this is the second one. Um, given this week's reminder of our own dysfunction, I think it's appropriate that this week I'm not telling you guys to do anything um, except to recognize and be thankful for the stubborn faithfulness of God. We should be able to see that stubborn faithfulness after the flood and during this Christmas season, right, as we are celebrating the pinnacle of God's stubborn faithfulness, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we do thank you for your stubborn faithfulness. Lord, I pray that if any one of us is doubting that, uh, that you have that, that tenacious desire to see us flourish and be truly blessed, I pray that you would help us to see in Jesus Christ and in this story the truth uh, that you are faithfully committed to humanity. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, our hearts would be softened to you and uh, to your, your desire to bless us, that we would not turn away from you, uh, but that we would receive all that you have to offer in your grace. Uh, we give you thanks, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.